Well, good morning, everybody. So we started 1 Kings last week. If you guys remember, we looked in chapter 2 and we did an introduction and just a brief overview of the books of 1 and 2 Kings, and now we're going to continue on. So if you have your Bible, you might, if you want to, you can turn to 1 Kings chapter 3. Remember last week we looked at David's about to die, and he gives his charge. He passes on his charge to Solomon, who's going to succeed him as king. And now we're going to start looking at Solomon. So let me go ahead and turn there. So in chapter 3, verse 1, it says this, that Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord, and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon uh, to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love. And have given him a son to sit on the throne to this day. And last week we looked at God's promise to David. That through your descendants, through your son, would come this Messiah. And we looked at, we looked at that a little bit last week. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father. Although I am but a little child. It doesn't mean he's young. It's a, it's, it was a way of referring in terms of humility. It's a way of saying I still have a lot to learn. I do not know how to go out or come in, which is a way of referring, I don't know how to lead. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great multitude, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. The very beginning of governing anything is to understand the difference between good and evil. If that understanding disappears... Government will go all kinds of other directions (laughs) because they have no reason for the decisions they make if they don't discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this and God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself for long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. And he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord, because David had already brought the, Moses' tent was in Gibeon, 
which is about five miles outside of Jerusalem. And David had a big procession already to get the ark over to Jerusalem because he knew that's where God wanted his, his house. That's where God wanted his place. And he offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. How many of you have read this story before? It's kind of even people that are not in the church kind of know the story of Solomon asking for wisdom and he became this super prosperous leader. But it's interesting how it starts. It says, verse 1, let's look at it again. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the Lord. Name of the Lord. When you read First and Second Kings, actually, if you, you read any book of the Bible, they never hide the sins of the leaders, the mistakes of the leaders, the imperfections of the leaders. I mean, if you read the Gospels, you would be shocked. Just count how many times it records the disciples arguing about who's the greater, arguing about who Jesus loves most, arguing who should be at the front of the line. It's like they're bickering, but it's recorded for us. And you find in First and Second Kings, I mean, you'll be leader after leader after leader. It has no problem telling you all of their sin. But why? Why be so clear about what they did wrong? Because... It's a way of showing God's abundant mercy and grace. And this is what, I, what we're going to look at in just a minute. When Christians sin, so often what they do is they feel guilt and shame, which is appropriate. Don't you think that would be a little weird, sinning and not feeling bad about it? That's weird. But what do they do after they sin and feel guilt and shame? So often what Christians do is they sideline themselves. They, you know what I mean? They ground themselves. They imprison themselves. They run away from God. They walk away from God. That's the opposite. The, no matter how bad you sin, no matter how horrible of a person you are for, in that moment, you want to run to God as fast as you can. Why? You never come to God based on your righteousness, based on your goodness. You only come to him based off of his mercy and his grace. You can't be good enough to approach him based on your goodness. Does that make sense? It's a way of showing God's abundant mercy and grace. If God blesses those leaders, it's not because they deserve it. It's because he's merciful and gracious. If God blesses you, is it because you deserve it? No. It's just a picture of his mercy towards you. And these introductory statements about Solomon immediately start telling us about his sins, his mistakes, and his imperfections. But God still blesses him abundantly. Look at this. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David. Alliances with, through marriage with foreign powers 
is viewed really negatively in Scripture. It was a breach of their relationship, their covenant, their agreement with God. One example, Deuteronomy 7, 3 to 4. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. You have to understand the, the idolatry, the satanic worship within the Egyptian religion or Canaanite religion. You understand what I'm saying? It's evil. So by marrying one of Pharaoh's daughters, you're not just getting her. You're getting the God she worships, the rituals she does, the demons she interacts with. You're getting her religion with her, right? Now, one reason why God didn't want them marrying the wives of foreign women to make an alliance, because that's how they would make alliances with other kings, was because they, they found themselves, a lot of these, remember, Israel's a tiny country. These are Egypt, more powerful than Israel, Right? Babylon, more powerful than Israel. It was a way to trust foreign kings in their power instead of trusting the Lord in his power. Right? The literal Hebrew for made a marriage alliance, the literal Hebrew says become someone's son-in-law. So in your English, it says made a marriage alliance with the daughter of Pharaoh in Hebrew, it says, become the son-in-law of Pharaoh. And what does that imply? You become subservient to that foreign king. That Pharaoh becomes the father-in-law of Solomon. Does that make sense? Let me give you an example. Joshua 23, 12 to 13. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you, and make marriages with them. In Hebrew, it says, become a son-in-law of them. So that you associate with them and they with you. Know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. And they will be a snare and a trap for you. Secondly, the foreign wives would lead their husbands into idolatry. They honored their gods more than their new husband, right? And so, that's exactly what happened to Solomon. Later on in 1 Kings 11, verse 1, now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edenite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. Verse 4, and his wives turned away his heart for when Solomon was old, his wives had turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. Now, that's the first thing that's mentioned about Solomon. Big mistake. What else does it say in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3? Let's read it again. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem, the people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because 
No house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. I want you to notice something. It says, until he had finished building whose house? His own house and the house of the Lord. Now, what's weird? Why say it like that? That's not the chronological order. If you, when we look at it later on in 1 Kings, his building projects in 1 Kings 6 and 7, he's, he builds the temple first. First. And then starts before his palace. So why does the text say building his own house and the house of the Lord? Why is it reverse it? Because the author is not just talking about the order, but the priority. Now, what do I mean by that? The text also says in 1 Samuel 6 and 7 that after he built the temple, then he starts working on his house, but he delays the work on all the temple furnishings until his house is done. I know, huh? <laughs> Here's what we read. Solomon spent seven years building the temple. Guess how long he spent building his palace? 13 years. And guess what? His palace was way bigger than the temple. He spent almost twice as much time building his own house compared to the Lord's house. How do we know that? 1 Kings 6, 30, verse 38 to chapter 7, verse 1. He was seven years in building it, which was the Lord's house. Solomon was building his own house 13 years, and he finished his entire house. So in 1 Kings 3, 1, until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord, what the author seems to highlight is Solomon's priority as opposed to just the chronology. But why? Who cares, right? The author also mentions that at this time, the people were sacrificing at the high places. What are high places? These open air sites that in the past, that was where cultic worship happened. Where the Canaanites, if they were worshiping Molech, would sacrifice their children. If they are worshiping Asherah, they would, those sacrifices involved a lot of bad stuff. A lot of um, lust and acting out in every types of way possible. These were really bad sites, right? And so now, did, they did worship Yahweh, Yahweh's the name of the Lord, at the high places, but what would happen? It often led to this synchronism, syncretism, where they're worshiping Yahweh, but then they're also worshiping the Canaanite gods. They're doing both. The high places often led to this synchronistic worship. And so worshiping at high places is condemned throughout 1st and 2nd Kings. In fact, when the kings are measured by God, often they are measured according to, did the king remove the high places or did he use the high places? For instance, King Jehoshaphat, 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 43, he walked in all the way of Asa, his father. He did not turn aside from it, doing what was right in the sight of the Lord. Yet, 
the high places were not taken away and the people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. Notice that in measuring King Jehoshaphat. Deuteronomy says Israelites should not be worshiping at the high places because God has chosen a place for them to worship. And God said, I want it in Jerusalem. I want it at this spot. An angel appears to David at that spot and says, this is it, right? But why does God only want worship at the temple of Jerusalem? Because Israel's this brand new nation surrounded by neighbors that worship demons, idols, false gods. How is God going to get Israel on the right track? He says, I want you worshiping in one place. It was going to help Israel focus on the one God instead of the many, many gods around them. Right? Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 4 and 5. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. They were, why, why, why a high place on a mountain or on a tree? These deities were territorial, right? Well, my God is over these mountains. My God's over this village. But the temple is a replica of the cosmos. The temple and all of the furniture replays for Israel the seven days of creation. The lampstand with the lights is when he created the stars. The, the basin with the water represents when he separated the waters and formed the sea. The, the, and, and so by walking in the temple, it's a representative of the cosmos and it's reminding Israel, your God's over everything not just a territorial God over this region. Does that make sense? But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go. So what's implied by 1 Kings 3, 1 to 2? Israel kept worshiping at the high places and the author says, could Solomon had not yet built the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem? It's a rebuke on Solomon. It's not just that it took time. It's the delay that Solomon is rebuked for. Does that make sense? Now, why are the sins, mistakes, and imperfections of Solomon, it's like they're highlighted. If you're going to start with Solomon, why start the story with all these things he did wrong. Again, God's mercy and grace is the point of the story. None of those leaders deserve his blessing. So why does he keep blessing them? Does that make sense? Now, let's notice something else. In, in, back in 1 Kings chapter 3, we just read verses 1 and 2, verse 3 to 5. Solomon loved the Lord walking in the statutes of David, his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. 
Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. So he's at Gibeon. There's a high place there. He is worshiping the Lord, right? But what happens after the dream? Verse 15. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. Where did he start his worship, his sacrifices? High place at Gibeon. Where, after the dream, this encounter with God, where does he shift it to? Jerusalem. It begins with Solomon worshiping and offering sacrifices to the Lord at the high place in Gibeon, about five and a half miles north of Jerusalem. It ends with Solomon worshiping and offering sacrifices in Jerusalem, which is where the Lord had said, I want my house there. Now, you might say, well, what's this change from worshiping at Gibeon to Jerusalem is a key to the whole story. If you look at the way it's broken up, the structure, verse 4, Solomon offers a sacrifice at Gibeon. Verse 5, Solomon, Yahweh, Lord appears to Solomon in a dream. The center part of the story is Solomon's prayer and the Lord's response, which we read. Then it says, and Solomon awoke, verse 15, it had been a dream. Then it says Solomon offers sacrifice at Jerusalem. Do you guys notice that? After Solomon encounters the Lord, after Solomon prays to him and hears him, all of a sudden we see a shift in Solomon's heart. Just another step of obedience. And he says, I'm going to leave the high place in Gibeon and go to God's chosen place in Jerusalem. Now that might seem like a small step. You could read the story and miss it, right? And what I want you guys to notice when we look in Kings... Not only does it keep highlighting the mistakes of all these leaders, but in the book of Kings, the author goes out of his way to highlight just the smallest steps of obedience. And sometimes you're reading a story and you kind of miss it. I, I was in a group one time, and the, this one guy that I knew, just re, he kept repeating over and over, he said, your Christian life is not about perfection. It's about progress. Right? Don't, just tiny little steps of obedience. That is how we make it in this life. Right? It's about progress, not perfection. Christians might sideline themselves because they have this ideal of what their life should be, and they think, wow, God, I'm not even close. So they don't, but what God is looking for is not perfection. He is looking, he wants progress. Even tiny steps matter. And that's what we find. Little victories matter. Progressive victories matter. Does that make sense? Yeah. Was the tabernacle in Jerusalem during the time all 
No, it was in Gibeon. David, David, and we didn't do it in, David does this huge ceremony to get the tabernacle, to get the Ark of the Covenant out of Moses' tent at Gibeon, and David pitches a tent in Jerusalem. Remember that? They mishandle the Ark. And who's the guy that dies? What's his name? Uzzah. Drops dead. That's a whole other story. Remember when that all happened? Solomon knew that he wasn't supposed to be in Gibeon. Where did God... God appeared to Solomon after he was sacrificing at Gibeon. Did Sol, Solomon didn't have it all together when God appeared to him. That's my point. I mean, we're gonna, this movie, Jesus Revolution, is coming out. Lonnie Frisbee is one of the main people that God uses for one of the greatest revivals in the 20th and 21st century. If you put it all, you know what I'm saying? The man was deeply flawed. And some of those flaws are really clear in the movie. I said, well, then why would God use him? Hello? Okay, what else? Verse 5. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, ask what I shall give to you. How do you imper... If you don't deserve blessing, how do you get it? How do imperfect, sinful screw-ups get blessed by God? If you don't deserve it, if you can't earn it, you, everybody say ask. You ask. You ask. If you don't deserve something, how do you receive it from God? You ask. And when he gives it, it's simply because he's good. The verb ask, sa'al in Hebrew, it's found eight times in this little story. It is a major theme in this little story. But what's interesting is what Solomon asked for, and this is important. Solomon didn't ask for things initially to make his life better. He asked for things to make the lives of his people better. Notice that? And what, and what was that? He said, give your servant, verse 9, therefore an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? Solomon asked for an understanding mind. Understanding Hebrew, Shema. Anybody ever hear Shema? Hear, O Lord. You know what I'm saying? The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Shema means listening or hearing. That's what, the, that's what it really means. Solomon's saying, God, you got to give me a heart that listens to you and hears you. What is he talking about? Hearing and understanding God's word, both from the prophets and from the scriptures. The same verb Shema in Scripture, sometimes it's translated hear, listen to me, and sometimes it's translated obey. The same word means hear or obey. 
depending on context is how it's translated in English as either hear or obey. But you might say, well, those are two completely different things. So why is one word used? And think about this. When my son obeys me, that's how I know he hears me. Someone that obeys their, an authority figure is the person that really heard that authority figure, right? Shema, which means listen, hear, or obey, is everywhere in Deuteronomy and the rest of the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 13, 18, if you obey or listen or hear the voice of the Lord your God, keeping all his commandments that I am commanding you today and doing what is right in the sight of the Lord your God. So Solomon, to govern his people well, says, I've got to hear the Lord. But what does he say? I have to discern between good and evil. To discern between good and evil, how do you do that? You need a mind that hears and understands God's word. How else are you going to know? Good and evil is not determined by nature. You can't walk out into the forest and look at the rocks and the trees and the animals and the wind and know good and evil, right? Good and evil is not determined by people. I am not the standard for what is good and evil. Do you want to be the standard for what is good and evil? God is the only way to determine. He's the only standard. If you want to know what an inch is, you get a ruler out. If you want to know what a meter is, you get a ruler out. If you want to know what God, good and evil is, you look at God. He is the standard. Who, what else would be the standard between good and evil? What else? Which, who wants their opinion to be the standard? Right? You want a culture to decide what's good and evil? Have you seen what human cultures do? Right? So what Solomon asked for is a hearing and understanding mind. Now, so how does God respond? Verse 10. It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this, and God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father walked, then I will lengthen your days. What, I don't know if you realize this. God says, Solomon, I'm going to give you all this stuff. Verse 14. If you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. All the rest of this stuff is unconditional. God says, you ask me, I'm going to give it to you. Here's the thing that's conditional. How long you have it. The length in your days is conditional. The rest of it, God says, I'm just going to give it to you. 
Just something to think about. God, God's answer to Solomon's prayer is broken up in two parts. The two parts are unequal in length. The answer, which is the second part, the answer from God, is a much longer text than the asking, the first part, from Solomon. And it's arranged in a way that shouts God's generosity. What does the word generosity mean? Somebody tell me. What does it mean? Unconditional giving, what else? Generosity, what does it mean? Abundant. Abundant. Right? Notice in verse ele- beginning of verse 11, three things that Solomon did not ask for. That's how it starts. Then, the second part of verse 11, one thing Solomon did ask for. Then verse 12, God grants what Solomon did ask for. And then verse 13 and 14, God grants what Solomon did not ask for. God gives Solomon way more than he asked for. Solomon's request in verse 9 has four key words in Hebrew. Give me a mind or heart, the word listen, the word discern, the word judge or govern. That's Solomon's request. He's got these four Hebrew words. God, I need these things. When God responds in verse 12, God repeats back to Solomon those four words, and then God adds two more. God adds a fifth and sixth word in Hebrew, different words, the word wise and the word understanding or perceiving. The implication, God says, Solomon, what you've asked me for, when I give it to you, it's going to be in more depth, more breadth than what you've asked me for. And God doesn't stop there. Then God gives Solomon what he didn't ask for. God says, you didn't ask me for riches, honor, and long life. But I'm going to give it to you. Success over your enemies. I'm going to give it to you. And I mentioned all the long life is the only answer that's conditional on Solomon's continual obedience. When Paul writes to the Ephesian church, Listen to what he says in Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly, far more abundantly. English translations keep translating that different ways, exceedingly above and beyond. Right? Then all that we ask or think. You cannot outgive God. According to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. The idea is God is the most generous person you will ever meet, and he will never not be the most generous person you'll ever meet. But Paul does say here, he also uses the word, Ask. Just like Solomon, ask. 
Ask, and it will be given to you. Why does God want you to ask? Because he wants to do this with you, not just to you. Asking means his generosity. It brings you into relationship. Me and God are going to talk about this. I'm going to ask him and he's going to answer, right? God could just bless you and be generous and you just completely ignore him. But he doesn't want just to give you stuff. He wants relationship with you. So he says, I'm going to actually wait for you to ask me. I'm telling you, I have, Brooke and I, my whole life, my whole Christianity has been lists on paper of things I ask for. Whether it's for my family, my kids, my finances, vacations, ministry opportunities, own personal things. My entire Christian life has just been a series of things that I ask for. And then I ask for new sets of things. And then I ask for new sets of things. I remember my wife and I, so we were in, Brooke and I, we visited in 2008 in in that fall, we visited the prayer room in Kansas City. We did no intention to move there just to see it and visit my brother who lived there. But while we were there, God said, move here. I had a great job in Southern California. I was making good money. We were well-established. We had a condominium. We had cars. We had jobs. We had everything. We had kids. And um, God said, move. And we had to be in Kansas City in exactly six weeks to start with the... I was going to join the staff of a ministry called the International House of Prayer and and a ministry called The Call. And in six weeks, there was like this launch, this start, and I had to be there. So when I came back from Kansas City, I gave my notice at work and quit my job. But I had no savings. In those days, I didn't save anything. If I had extra money, Brooke and I, we literally gave it away. Now, there are different seasons, right? In that season of our life, it was give it all away. No investments, no savings. Now we're still giving, but we also have a savings and investments. Yeah. It was investing. I'm just talking about, yeah. So what happened when I gave my notice? I got my final paycheck. What happened with my final paycheck? We paid our bills. How much money did we have after that? When I'm, I'm not joking when I say none. My wife had a little travel agency. She made a little money, but that was not enough. We did not have enough money. Not only did we not have enough money to live in Kansas City, because the job I'm going into didn't pay any much salary. No salary. When I mean no salary, of, later on we got a, I got like $1,000 a month, but at that time, no salary. I, not only did we not have money not to live in Kansas City, we did not have enough money for the moving truck to go to Kansas City. It's like $10,000 to do a massive move of all your stuff from one city to another. Not only that, we had a condominium we were going to leave, 
But this is, remember the 2008? Anybody know what happened to property values? We couldn't sell it. So the only option was a renter. We couldn't find a renter. So no money for the move to Kansas City. No money for when we arrive in Kansas City. No renter for our condominium. Practically, there was no way this was possible. And, my, and I remember in, in the early part of those six weeks, Brooke went to a, a seminar, Sandals Resort. And you, she won a vacation to Sandals. So we have no money to move, no money for life, no money for ministry, but she wins an all-inclusive vacation to a Sandals Resort. And she remembered her saying that after that evening, when she got back in her car, she just felt like the Lord speaking to her. If I can provide your wants, how much more will I provide your needs? If I can provide for your wants, how much more will I provide for your needs? That's called generosity. So we tried fundraising. We did, you know, you know how you know one of the fundraising letters, send it out to people we know. We're, you know, we're gonna be living off of support. Anybody wanna support us? <laughs> it was a miserable failure. We didn't get any supporters. Now, you're supposed to live in an international house of prayer off of support. We had no supporters. So all of a sudden, I am going into extreme anxiety. Feeling like I'm, this is the most foolish, irresponsible, irrational move. I'm going to leave my job, go into full-time ministry, and file for bankruptcy. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> I'm stressed out. I'm angry. I'm, I'm just, and, and week after week, and one day I was driving and my hands were almost shaking on the steering wheel because I'm so overwhelmed by stress. And I felt like the Lord gave me a Bible verse, Psalm 55, 22. Cast your cares upon the Lord, or cast your burdens upon the Lord, for he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous fall. That verse became a lifeline for me. Cast your cares upon the Lord, for he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous fall. And I'm telling you, and this is true, that I literally held onto that verse like a man falling off of a cliff and grabbing onto the edge. I literally would repeat that verse to myself multiple times every hour of every day. Because my own thoughts were just of negative everything. So I've got to, the word of God has to replace my own thoughts. Cast your cares upon the Lord. He will sustain you. He'll never let the righteous fall. I prayed that over and over. And I said, God, you promised it. God, you promised it. God, you promised it. Finally, we're at our going away party. We're supposed to leave in Kansas City in like two weeks or one week. I don't remember the exact time frame. I have, still have no money. We're at our going away party. There are like 100 people there. Everybody's congratulating us for off this great adventure. And I can't, I do not have money for the Penske truck. That's true. And I, at this point, I'm not telling anybody. I'm not going to like 
you know, woe is me and can somebody please send me money? I'm just like, oh, God. And, and what I'm saying is people didn't know our financial situation. We didn't tell anybody. I decided I'm going to tell God. And a man came up to me and asked me how I'm doing financially. And I lied to him. I said, oh, it's working out. And he said, oh, well, I was praying and the Lord gave me a dollar amount to give you. And I honestly am thinking a couple hundred dollars. And then he says, the Lord gave me the amount of 24000 he And he handed me a check. And then it was like that weekend, I had never in my entire life gotten paid money to preach. Which, by the way, I do not take a salary from this church. So, but I'd never had what's called an honorarium. You know what I mean? This church asked me to go share. I went and shared that weekend and they gave me a $500 honorarium. That never happened before. But I didn't, I just saw God as another way of slipping me money. And we had enough money for the move. And then we lived in Kansas City. You know, we never did get supporters. And we lived there five years. Literally, God's generosity sustained us in Kansas City. He sustained us. Through all kinds of ways. You got to ask. So we're going to take communion. What's amazing about communion is Paul said this, if God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how much more will he what? How much more will he what? What does it say? Romans 8. Give us all things. And communion is reminding about him giving us his own son. So yeah, you guys want to take it away? <laughs> 